Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh. There's Chuck Dragonslayer Bryant. And, uh, well, that's it. It's just the two of us. We can make it if we try, Chuck. Just the two of us. Dragons and us. And the great Bill Withers. Was that Bill Withers? <laughs> Can't even say it with it a straight say. We just had the same conversation like two months ago. I'm not doing it again. Oh, about Bill Withers? Yeah, I, I didn't oh, realize that that Lord. was a Bill Withers song. Man, it was a good wrong. song. Lean on me, though, man, is just, whoa, I mm. cannot take it. Grandma's bed. What is that? Is that it's a Bill Withers, Withers song? song? <laughs> I did not know that. It's good. He's He's great. And we probably had this exact same conversation. I don't know if we had that one or not, but you know who else I like? Um, who's a little bit like Bill Withers, not quite as cool, I guess, if you're like a cool person, but um, George Benson was amazing and still is. I think he's still around. You ever listen to his stuff? Yeah, but now I'm realizing that I, uh, maybe I should just not correct myself and let people be send in a bunch of emails. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. It's when oh, we get a million of the same emails. It's grandma's hands. I was getting it. Uh, John Denver's grandma's feather bed kind of just was in the ether. So, gotcha. Because we just talked about John Denver about sure. karaoke. So, grandma's yeah, gra- bed. Grandma's hands. The follow up to use me up. Ugh. So, dragons. Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> dragons. Let's have a pleasant conversation about dragons, shall we, Chuck? Yeah. Dragons uh, aren't real. <laughs> Wait. And you'll notice by the title of this episode, which is Dragons, colon, As Real as Mermaids. Mm, yeah. And it's funny because I think the week before this comes out, Mermaids is a is our pick for the uh, Selects. the select episode, so it's, it aligns perfectly. That is perfect. But dragons um, aren't real. Well, okay. I, please stop saying that because you're crushing my dreams. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so when we when we talk about dragons, we have to say right here at the outset that there's a lot of different kinds of dragons. Um, and typically when you think of like the the flying winged, usually long, maybe scaly fire um, breathing, fire breathing dragon, often with a long kind of serpentine tail. Sometimes it's even um, pointy like the devil. Sure which we'll see why, um, that's considered a Western dragon. Um, and that is its own thing that kind of evolved from a number of different traditions. But there's also the Asian dragon, um, which, you know, has variations among different Asian countries, but it generally seems to be kind of the same ancient Chinese thing. Um, that's a totally different thing, and it evolved on its own in isolation as well. And so... Um, because you've got these different traditions of dragons that seem fairly similar in a lot of ways, there's a lot of people out there who say, wow, this is astounding. Every culture in the world has some sort of tradition of dragons. And that's kind of true. But yeah. at the, at the um, like throughout this episode, we'll see um, 
that's not really accurate. Like that nowadays, it seems that way because we have overlaid the idea of dragons over everything. But if you really kind of dig into the past and and look into the nuance of some of these things that we term dragons, they're very different. So it's a lot more accurate to say that like every culture in the world has mythical beasts, some of which share a lot in common uh, with our modern conception of dragons. And that's probably where our modern conception of dragons came from was all these different ideas of it in the ancient past. Yeah, there's a, a book uh, called An Instinct for Dragons written by an anthropologist named David E. Jones mm-hmm. uh, about dragons and, and dragons throughout cultures and across cultures. And there's a theory he's got going, which is humans evolved and primates uh, evolved with a fear of three predators, basically, um, snakes, Cats, which are big cats, not <laughs> house cats, right. and eagles. And that a dragon, it sort of makes sense that every culture sort of has something like a dragon because in folklore and myth and in storytelling, you might combine the three scariest things into one super scary thing, and that is a dragon. Right. And you might say, like, well, wait a minute. Like, I think eagles are kind of cool. I'm not at all scared. Sure. Number one, have you ever been around an eagle when it was loose? I'll bet you'd be kind of scared of it because those talons are serious. <laughs> or one that dive-bombed you? I think Exactly. More to the point, though, or more to, I, I should say, um, David Jones's point, um, that this would be this fear, this innate fear that humans have would be based much more deeply in our evolutionary past when we were monkeys and you actually could be killed by certain kinds of eagles, like the harpy eagle. Remember we talked about the harpy eagle in the sloth mm-hmm. episode because they can mess a sloth up. They can mess a monkey up too. So this guy's premise is like we have these ancient fears of these things and as we evolved and became humans and started telling each other stories, these things combined, like you were saying, into this one fierce mythological monster, which was basically the the sum of all of our most primal fears. Yeah, and then, of course, if you look at uh, ancient cultures, they always had sort of mythical stories and folklore to explain, you know, everything from weather phenomenon to things like volcanoes. Uh, And if they happened upon maybe dinosaur bones or whale bones, then a story might go along with that to explain it away. Like, you know, this was clearly some huge lizard-like creature or maybe a snake-like creature, and there was probably a story around it and why they should fear it or uh, usually some sort of a sacrifice that they needed to make, um, you know, sort of in lockstep with those stories. Mm-hmm. But that's just sort of another theory on maybe how the dragon uh, might have come about as far as folklore goes. One of the most interesting theories that I saw, uh, and we should say no one has a, a, a widely accepted answer for this, which I love as always. Sure. Um, but that it was the bee that the that the description um, often um, in ancient cultures they used to use like riddles and exaggeration and metaphor to. Um, discuss and, and talk about and describe uh, actual things, and that the the bee, um, the, a description of a bee, or I should say a swarm of a bee, is what actually became the dragon in, in mythology. And at first, you're just like, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense at all. But some of the points that these people made, there was a journal article in it, um, in I think like a journal on Tolkien studies or something like that. But they say that... Um, 
a, sw- a bee swarm moving together. It doesn't necessarily resemble a dragon, but it's, it makes a lot more sense a- along those lines than it does when you're talking about an individual bee. It does in a cartoon. Exactly. It can do, <laughs> it can point an arrow, it can make an arrow to point a direction, you know, where somebody's hiding, that kind of thing. Um, and then another one is that the fire, the the idea of a dragon breathing fire is a metaphor for the the feeling of like your skin burning from a bee sting or right. the intense pain. And then lastly, um, in the Western tradition, a lot of dragons protect like mounds of gold mm. or treasure. And that this is a metaphor for honey and yeah. gold, the, like the honeycombs that ancient people would have basically considered uh, gold, not just, you know, um, food, but also it was used as medicine as well. So if you kind of put all that together, it's, it seems like a pretty— Interesting theory, at least. It it makes a lot more sense than a bee, you know, when you really kind of dig into it. Yeah, totally. Uh, The word itself is, um, well, you can look back to the Iliad when Homer wrote about the D-R-A-K-O-N, the dracon, which supposedly is the first known use of the word. Mm -hmm. Uh, In ancient Greek is sort of has some... Uh, confusing etymology behind it, but basically Homer uses that word to describe snakes. Like like uh, unequivocally. Yeah, and not, you know, huge flying, fire-breathing snakes, but just snakes. Yeah. Yeah, he even says, no, I'm just talking about snakes, everybody. Yeah. Not dragons. <laughs> right. Don't get ahead of yourself. These are snakes. And I mean, they say that, like, he points out that he's talking about snakes because he even says um, a chimera, which is... Um, uh, I think the head of a lion, the goat body, a serpent tail, and bat's wings. He even says the the serpent tail, the the back portion of the chimera, is a dragon. So he's talking right. about just regular old snakes for sure. Yeah, and other writers and other classical stories did the same thing. Whether it was uh, Dracontus or Draconis, using all these words sort of interchangeably with uh, other words for snake. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we go to. Uh, the history of, uh, not the history, but just history of animals. And that's the first sort of scientific take on the dracone, which is an enemy of the eagle because uh, an eagle as a bird of prey would eat snakes, obviously. And different people got a little more specific on later writings as to what kind of snake, but it's still just snakes. Yeah. So over time, like that's that's where the word dragon came from. Was it to use the? It was a word for snake. That's it. And then over time, as people um, started to exaggerate here or there, conflate different types of snakes and different behaviors that aren't found in snakes, but saying that they were, and they all kind of put that under the umbrella word for snakes, dragon. Um, it seems like the the legend or the myth, the mythical version of dragon started to kind of plump up and grow. Yeah, and this um, this is a point Ed uh, the Grabster put this together uh, put this together for us. But mm-hmm. Ed points out something I kind of never really considered. Back in the day, in the classical period, writers were writers. There weren't like, hey, I'm going to write uh, only about you know natural history, and I'm only going to write fiction and myth and storytelling. Like writers just wrote. So there were people that wrote natural history tomes and uh, also myth and storytelling legends. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of this stuff could get kind of mixed up and confused, exaggerated. Mistranslation is a huge, <laughs> huge deal. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And a lot of this is sort of where the sort of the myth of the dragon came from. I just think of like some writer getting confused what they were working on that day. And right. now we have the myth of dragons. <laughs> right. 
You know? It's like, was this real or not? I can't remember. Who cares? So, um, yeah, like you you really hit upon something really important. Mistranslations, or at the, at a different way to put it is lazy translation, have really kind of changed um, our idea of what people were talking about in the ancient world. And I can't imagine how much nuance and understanding has been lost. Oh, and sure. How, how probably dumb in a lot of ways— ancient people seem compared to how they actually were because right. of this tradition of like um, pee-poor translation that was passed <laughs> down over the year. Pee-poor. <laughs> yeah. That's very cute. And the, the, the reason why it's kind of lazy translation is it seems like anybody who came across an ancient text or a text in another language um, who's translating something into English um, and they were seem, seem to be describing anything even remotely dragon-like, any mythical beast, anything that might have wings, anything with a serpent tail, anything that breathes fire, boop, dragon, it's a dragon. And then now, those of us who have a certain con- compartmentalized idea of what a dragon is, everything was a dragon. And now we've reached that point where it's like, this is how we got this idea that every culture has dragons. No, we just kind of lazily translated what other cultures were talking about into dragons along the way. Right. I think that is a great first act. Thank you. Thank you. I'm bowing. (laughs) I'm throwing roses at your feet. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we're going to take a little break, Rooney, and be right back. So the rose petals I sent you arrived in time, (laughs) just in time. Thank you for throwing them and not saving them for something else. I also realized it just went all Ned Flanders with the Breaker Rooney. I've never said that before in my life. I liked it, though. It was refreshing. We need that kind of wet behind the ears, you know, wholesomeness right now, Chuck. Yeah, in your 14? No, not just us. I mean the world. (laughs) Okay. You know? Yeah, up, up with Flanders. Yeah, up with Flanders. That's right. So my favorite thing always about Flanders was when he would be really buff, like <laughs> every time he took off his shirt magically. Stupid, sexy Flanders. <laughs> I know it's, it's hilarious. So funny. He he ascribed it to a healthy dose of vitamin Church. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love it. Yeah. Uh, all right, where were we here? Giant we, snakes. Yeah, we talked about them. We were talking about mistranslations were a big problem. And I think a good place to start with that is back in Sumeria. Yeah, the Sumerian legends uh, wrote about something called the Usum, U-S-U-M, also called dragons or, you know, at least referred to as dragons now. And these were kind of like you said at the beginning. These were just sometimes just large monsters, large scary things. And not necessarily a dragon, but was sort of just translated as dragon. Yeah, and I should say Sumer, not Sumeria. But um, they they were these were like 
their gods that they were talking about. These were, you know, the 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 like the god of the goddess of water who gave birth to the world. Like they had this incredibly detailed cosmology that explained, you know, where they came from, where the world came from, where the sun came from, um, and we along the way translated that to dragons, right. You know, so it, luckily there are scholars who have learned to speak Akkadian, I guess the world's oldest um, spoken language, A-K-K-A-D-I-A-N, not the the uh, Canadian group that the um, Cajuns come from. This is different. Um, but the so we understand now that there's much more nuance, much more detail to it. But I think the upshot of this is that there, there were conceptions of like fire breathing and like flying serpents and like potentially malicious, malevolent, evil, mythical beasts that would resemble kind of what we would uh, understand as a dragon dating back thousands of years. Yeah. And, you know, this course goes straight to the Bible as well in Revelations. Um, There's a lot of talk about the archangels, archangels battling a great dragon. Uh, In this case, the dragon is Satan. But again, this is sort of a translation, like Satan was always sort of the serpent, at least in Genesis, it first appeared as a serpent. And so, in the end, Satan is also a serpent, Mm -hmm. but spelled, you know, with a -A D-R-A-K-O-N, like the ancient Greek. Oh, is that Um, right? Yeah, but there's, you know, I mean, not in the King James Version and stuff like that, obviously. Sure. But again, you know, pre-translation, and, you know, there were... Uh, sort of renderings of this, of the big war for heaven. And this is when we see, you know, kind of what we would see later on, which is metaphor for good versus evil in a big battle. So that's what William Blake's Paradise Lost is about, right? I've never read it. I haven't either. I'm just familiar with it from that movie Red Dragon. Okay. (laughs) About the Silence of the Lambs prequel, I think. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, He's like, do you see... You remember when Ray Fiennes has got poor uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman strapped to that wheelchair? Oh man, that is one of like crime scene photos. I have spoiler coming. Didn't love that movie. It was okay, but that uh, that shot of that burning wheelchair and body going down the parking deck is one of the most sort of chilling images I've seen in movies. I know. The thing that chills me about it, though, is it's an antique wicker wheelchair, which is the scariest (laughs) thing I've ever seen in my life. I hate those. You don't like those, huh? No, I think we just talked about it recently, and I, I every for the rest of my life, I will be creeped out by those things. <laughs> I'm gonna get you one. Slide whistle with <laughs> no, this Christmas. Next don't. Christmas, you're just gonna get a an ancient wicker wheelchair. No, I don't want. I don't want to be wasteful, so I won't throw it away, and I'll just have to live among it. It's gonna be terrible. Like I'll well, never you, get used to it either. You could make a. Uh, uh, a life-size chuck dummy, put it <laughs> yeah. in there and set it on fire and roll it down a parking deck. Oh, I wouldn't do that. I'd make a, a life-size version of Chuck and just talk to you. <laughs> be like, listen, I got a lot of stuff to say to you. That's even creepier, by And you're going to sit there and listen to it. <laughs> I'll be wearing nothing but an apron. Just like a real doll with a big fake beard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, okay, so yeah, good versus evil is sort of how a lot of these um, tales and folklore play out, and also incorporating stuff that you would see time and time again in literature later on. Like, there's a dragon that lives out by itself near mm-hmm. a village, and it's a greedy, vengeful dragon. And we need to appease this dragon with sacrifice. 
once a year or else it will come down and like rain fire upon everyone. Yeah. So um, all of this stuff, like this idea, this Western dragon that you're describing, like that's taken from like um, Beowulf, I believe, the the dragon that killed Beowulf in the I always thought it was a Norse legend, but apparently it's English, old English. Oh, really? It's just set in um, in the Netherlands or in Scandinavia in the Norse. Hmm. I think, I think somewhere. I don't remember exactly where it's set. It's just set there. It's not written by them. Um, but that, like that dragon, was malevolent, and I believe it was guarding treasure. I think the reason it went berserk and Beowulf had to kill it was because somebody stole one of its golden goblets, aka mm. honey. Mm-hmm. Ah. Because they're really talking about a bee, but so you have an idea of a, a a greedy, murderous dragon that protects treasure. Like that comes from an ancient tradition, but that's a pretty pretty standard feature of dragons, like you were saying. Yeah. So all this is going on for many, many, many years. Uh, finally, the rubber kind of meets the road as far as Western dragons are concerned with the legend of Saint George. Mm-hmm. Um, who was a Christian saint, a real Christian saint, maybe a real person, uh, who may have been a Roman soldier who was, uh, you know, tortured and killed for converting pagans to Christianity. This is circa 4th century AD. Mm-hmm. And because of stories getting passed around like a game of telephone, um, the actual first name of that story, uh, when it was told, was St. Theodore, but it was really St. George. So I saw that they're both possibly known as dragon-slaying saints. Okay. It's not necessarily like George took that from Theodore. They're both known for having slain a dragon. But what's interesting is if you see um, St. Theodore depicted with his dragon, it's very clearly a crocodile. And they're the the origin <laughs> story um, of either one, but particularly St. George, is that there is a town in modern-day Turkey or possibly Palestine, I'm not 100% sure, but in what would have been called Anatolia back then, um, <clears throat> where they had the spring, like this town got their water from the spring, mm-hmm. and it was guarded by a giant massive crocodile. And that the townspeople would sacrifice a sheep to us, sometimes two a day, basically to distract the crocodile so they could go get the water and then get out of there. And then they ran out of sheep. So they said, well, what's, what comes after sheep? How about maidens? So they started throwing maidens, sacrificing maidens, literally mm-hmm. throwing them to the crocodile to to distract it so they could get the water. And eventually they came upon the king's daughter. They drew straws to see what maiden was would go next. And uh, St. George apparently arrived just in time to slay the dragon, a.k.a. the crocodile. But that, that that's this idea that that's where this story of somebody slaying a dragon could have been rooted in reality, that over the years, this massive crocodile, um, which was so fearsome and so murderous and killed so many people, was converted into a, a dragon over the years. And so St. George slew the dragon, and that's where that came from. And there was a real crocodile that lived by a real spring. Right. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I thought so too. I love it when something that seems totally legendary has, right. is rooted in some sort of fact. It's just people embellished or exaggerated over time. Totally. Uh, if you want to go with the sort of real great first image of what we think of as a Western dragon, uh, you can go to 1260 AD uh, in an illustration in a medieval uh, bestiary called M.S. Harley 3244. Uh Great title. I think Ed said it was probably a, a catalog designation. Yeah, I think the real title is Peraldus's Theological Miscellany. 
Yeah, which is, that's an actual great title. Yeah, I like uh, uh, MS Harley 3244. <laughs> it's, it's cool looking, though. You can, uh, if you're near a laptop or something, you can look this thing up. And it is, you know, you look at it, and this is exactly what you think of as something from, like, Lord of the Rings or Game mm-hmm. of Thrones or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a, like— It's a dragon. It's how a scene starts, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so oh, sorry, I see what you're saying. Like, the dragon that, that shows up in there, specifically the red one? Well, no, I just mean sort of the dragon that we all think of in, in sort of literature and folklore. Right. Like, this is clearly that. Yeah, and supposedly it's the first one from like, around 1260. Did you say that? Yeah. So, um, th- and yeah, when you see it, you're like, yes, this is probably the basis of the Western dragon as we understand it. Um, and it would have spread uh, to Europe, which it did. I think that was English. Um, it was by a guy named William Peralt, and I believe he was English. So it would have spread from England to the rest of Europe. And that that kind of um, set the stage for... At least the visual version of the Western Dragon from that point on. Thanks to England Dan. <laughs> right. I think we said English Dan. It's England Dan. Oh, is it? English Dan makes way more sense. Yeah, England Dan's a little weird. Yeah, but it, hey, England Dan was a little weird. But your nickname is America Josh. Sure. How about All America <laughs> Josh? Uh, should we take a break now and talk about uh, Asian dragons? Yeah, let's. All right, we'll be right back with A Kinder, Gentler Dragon right after this. Okay, so Chuck, you mentioned something. You said a kinder, gentler dragon. It's true. Like, Western dragons are generally, in the tradition, murderous, greedy, wealth-hoarding jerks. Boo. Who may be pure evil personified. Yeah. An Asian dragon, which everybody has seen, at the very least in, like, a photo of a street parade yeah. or in some sort of, um, uh, like, a, a Chinese silk screen or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um an Asian dragon is typically much more benevolent than that, um, and usually is associated with rain, uh, water, that kind of thing. And so when you see those, like a dragon being paraded around where it's a bunch of people like under like a dragon costume, that's actually based on a very ancient um, rain dance, essentially, a, a, a ceremony to invoke rain because these dragons were associated with that. Yeah, and this is uh, far, far, far older than in the West. Uh, I think in about 6,000 B.C., Mm -hmm. uh, there were people in China that were carving little dragon uh, jade figurines. And there was art back then, I think as far back as 400 B.C., where it's clearly some kind of dragon. Um, But again, supposedly independent from the sort of uh, uh, evolution of the Western dragon. Yeah, and so... Um, all of this was based on uh, some of the early, like, Chinese religion um, was based on animism. And not just Chinese, uh, but a lot of ancient religions are based on animism where, like, uh, an inanimate object is um, is a symbolic of, like, a larger thing or like a god, yeah. like the god of wind or the god of rain. And so these 
ancient dragons were considered gods of rain. And there were different, um, there's different types, there's different kinds. But again, like the fact that they are generally um, beneficial to humankind rather than harmful, I think is, is it's, it's interesting. It's, I, I wonder what that says about the two different cultures, if anything, yeah. you know, that dragons are harmful and they're going to kill you and they're going to steal all your gold, or they're going to bring the rain that's going to grow the food that saves your family. Uh, you know, where did that diverge or did it just, they just don't have anything to do with one another? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Sort of a side note, I'm playing, I've been playing video games some during the pandemic, which I'm usually not a big gamer, mm-hmm. but I've been playing a game lately called Ghost of uh, Tsushima, mm-hmm. which is a, you play a samurai warrior that's sort of traveling through Japan and ancient times. Right. And it's really interesting to compare that to like the analog for the West would be like Red Dead Redemption in the Old West with gunslingers. Yeah. And it's just such a different game design and everything it's the the one in japan is or uh, the ghost of tsushima is so peaceful it's one of the most beautiful games i've ever seen and instead of like a map telling you where to go you press a button and the wind guides you and <laughs> cool. if, if you see a fox you follow the fox up to a shrine and you uh and you pay your respects to the shrine and it it doesn't really get you much other than it's not like you get like a million points or something for doing that. It's just, it seems like they really tried to honor Japanese traditions in so much of this game. And uh, the motivations are always pure. Uh, like even when you're slicing guys up with your katana, uh-huh. <laughs> it's because you're rescuing, you know, some old lady in a village. Yeah. Whereas the other game is just like, hey, just go and just pillage and murder and do awful things. Shoot them up. Yeah. It's really interesting. I'm much more enjoying this game. Well, you said something that that um, struck a memory in me about uh, dragons. And the, there's a commonality between um, Asian dragons, particularly Chinese dragons, which are called long or lung, L-U-N-G, uh-huh. um, and Western dragons. And typically, they live in isolated areas away from everybody. And in Asia, the uh, Chinese dragons usually live in old ruined temples. Like that's where you'll find them dwelling. Oh, interesting. There are plenty yeah. of those in that game. Exactly. So, are there dragons in that game? Not yet, but now I'm kind of wondering. Oh, yeah. Look out. Uh, it's pretty early. <laughs> because I did run across a Japanese type of dragon that um, that is malevolent, not not very nice. I don't remember the name of it, so I guess be on the lookout for all of them. Interesting. Yeah, so far there's nothing <laughs> supernatural. It's uh, Mongols that are the bad guys. I gotcha. Yeah. And then uh, there's another type of Japanese dragon I ran across called Ryu. And this one actually bears a lot in common to the intelligent Western dragon in that it um, writes poetry. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it uses um, shed scales from its belly as oh, paper. Wow. And you and um, I don't know what it uses for ink, but I think it uses its tail as a pen, a quill. The blood writes, of a virgin? Writes poetry. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's it's like, that was super, a sweet story. <laughs> super nice, except for that one thing. Yeah. Oh, if we could just get it some ink. <laughs> right. There's something else I think people should look up here if you're looking up images, which is um, an artist named Chen Rong, C-H-E-N-R-O-N-G. Yeah. A very famous painter in uh, Asia of dragons. And this was like 13th century A.D. And if you look up some of the stuff, it's really, really neat looking. Yeah, about the same time as um, uh, Peraldus's Theological Miscellany was was done with that first Western dragon, Chen Rong was making these just amazing works of art. I think one of them's in the Boston 
Museum of Fine Art. Oh, cool. It's called like Nine Dragons or something. But it, I, it, was, um, it reminded me of um, the artwork in the original Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series. I never read that. The, dude, that artwork in there is just amazing. But it has like all these weird kind of splotchy clouds mm-hmm. of ink. And Chen, Chen Rong um, makes use of that as well. It's, it's really kind of startling how, how closely the two resemble. I wonder if the artist from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was inspired by that in some way. I bet. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. No. No, it's not ripping off. At all. Yeah. I don't know why you'd even say that. Why would you even bring <laughs> ripping off up? <laughs> yeah. So we should probably talk about famous dragons at this point because we've thrown a couple out, like the one from Beowulf, who apparently doesn't even have a name. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are so many stories in literature uh, and movies, obviously, that have had dragons throughout the years. Certainly, Tolkien. Uh, in the mid-1930s when he wrote The Hobbit. Um, This was a really evil dragon Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, drawn from that Western sort of influence of evil dragons. Smog, right? Yeah, Mm S-M-A-U-G. Dungeons and Dragons in the 70s was a very big um, sort of, you know, I don't know how much dragons had fallen out of the sort of pop culture eye, but it really brought it back in if it did fall out. Uh, because in the game, there were different kinds of dragons. Yeah. There were a couple of different sets uh, who were indicated by different colors. Uh, red, green, black, white, and blue, I think, were evil. Mm-hmm. And then there were the the bronze, brass, silver, and gold, which were, for the most part, good. And they all had different things they could do and different temperaments. And um, something that we talked a little bit about is the fire-breathing thing. There were... There are lots of different theories as to how that came about. Maybe the tide of Satan with fire. Um, Early on when they were just serpents, Mm -hmm. perhaps they were drawn spitting venom and that could have looked like fire. Yeah, that makes sense. But there's always some sort of breath-emitting weapon going on, it seems like. Yeah, over time it's translated into, um, I think, like the white dragon in Dungeons & Dragons, blue, like basically ice, like cold. Um, some dragons uh, uh, blew out electricity, um, which you would think would be kind of new, but apparently the Leviathan, which is mentioned in the Bible, is a sea dragon, basically, supposedly spit electricity out. Um, but there's something weird coming out of the dragon's mouth that's probably going to kill you. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to test that. No. Um, and we were saying also that the uh, the first visual depiction of the dragon shows up in in uh, Harley thirty two forty four. Um, the first mention of the dragon in like a story, like a fictitious story, supposedly comes in Spencer Edmonds' The Fairy Queen. Oh yeah, yeah. And then it shows up after that a little while later in um, Marie Catherine Dolnoy's The Green Serpent, and then it just kind of takes off from there. You know, you have a connection to uh, Pete's Dragon, right? I do. Uh, my friend Toby was a producer on Pete's Dragon. Yeah, the, for the remake, obviously. Yes, um, which was really, really good and, and touching and, and tear-jerking a little bit. I never saw the remake. I need to check that out. It's it's very good. They did a really good job with it. Uh, but, you know, if you haven't seen the movie Reign of Fire, just stop what you're doing and watch that because that is 
the king daddy of all dragon movies. I have not seen that. Do we? Should we pause? <laughs> come back and finish the episode after. It's great. It's one of those movies that um, I, I don't know how well it did at the box office. I don't think super well, but it's one of those that has really become sort of a cult classic uh-huh. uh, since then uh, with McConaughey and Christian Bale. It's so over the top and just so <laughs> fun. Uh-huh. Uh, it's really, really good. So it's kind of like the Pacific Rim of Dragon movies? Yeah. Or Starship yeah. Troopers of Dragon movies? <laughs> oh, man, that's another great movie. Um, there's also Puff the Magic Dragon. Don't forget him. Oh, God, the saddest song of all time. Who my did? mom taught my daughter that it's the worst. Who? Yeah, it has nothing to do with pot. So just, you know, forget that, hippie. It's just sad. It is a very sad one. And then also I think our younger... Um, Listeners would be really mad if we didn't mention Dragon Ball Z. Right. And there's, you know, I didn't watch Game of Thrones, but I know there's there were little trained dragons in that one. Yeah. That grew. Yeah. And Chuck, it's just so satisfying to look over all of the different depictions of dragons that you see and all the, the differences and all the similarities and realize that all of them are talking about bees. Yeah. You know? Totally. Yeah. You got anything else? I got nothing else. There's uh, dragons. Well, if you want to know more about dragons, head out to a ruined temple or maybe go search for gold in a cave and you might encounter one yourself. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, This is a story about uh, corn and poop. (laughs) Oh, God. Hey, guys, here's my corn story. Uh, One I've repeated often throughout my lengthy life. I just turned 70. Woohoo. Nice. Happy birthday. Uh, so this is from Mary. Mary 70. Happy, well, not happy birthday, but happy uh, happy decade turning. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? I think birthday still works. <laughs> no, but it, it wasn't her birthday necessarily. But Happy decade turning? Yeah, like when you hit 70 or 60 or 50. Sure. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm made just it saying another, like a, it's a new it's thing. It's a rich history of saying happy the song, happy decade turning. What song is that? Happy, happy decade turning. Is that a Bill Withers song? You made it another 10 years. Lean on me. <laughs> That's good. You guys see uh, Jay's hands there. <laughs> Man, I think I awkwardly got my way out of that really awkward sentence. You did. It was really good. Uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas, guys. One blazing hot summer day when I was about three or four, I was out in the driveway standing around kind of checking out the neighbor kid who was in her driveway, who was about two, Uh, It's hotter than the blazes. Uh, Her name was Bianca. She was younger than me and still in the diaper phase of life, but was so hot she wasn't wearing a diaper or anything else. Uh, Nature called to Bianca, and voila, a couple of little poos were deposited on the cement. Uh, Being a curious child, I went over to check it out, and lo and behold, there in the poop, embedded securely but definitely visible, were corn kernels. Mm -hmm. Unmasticated yellow against the brown corn kernels. Right. Yeah, no, we we got it. It's just the <laughs> corn kernels. Uh, thusly, I've never been able to look at corn, nor, God forbid, eat corn, literally, in any form ever since. Yeah, I could see that happening if it hits you in just the right way, especially at a certain age. Yep. She says, not even corn pone, which I had to look <laughs> up. I didn't even know what corn pone was. It's like cornbread, I think. Yeah, yeah. Not even corn pone? Good God, how have you lived 70 years without corn pone? Uh, a great emotional scar was born that day. The only benefit of that experience is that whenever I want to cross, or I'm sorry, gross anyone out, I just pull out the corn in the poop story. All adults hate it. All children are gleefully grossed out by it. 
Yeah. Love your show, guys, uh, especially when y'all wander off topic and then wander back. I think in the Chili Pepper episode, y'all wandered over to Yoko Ono, which was interesting. <laughs> and that is from Mary Foy in Issaquah, Washington. Well, thanks. Uh, well, yeah, I guess thanks in quotes, <laughs> Mary, for that one. I love uh, it. But thank you also for listening to us. Uh, if you want to write in and kind of gross us out, uh, like Mary did, we're always up for that kind of thing. You can take your best shot. Uh, send it off to Stuff Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.